really hot in the chairs at this point. We've just finished up the Lincoln episode, which you will have already heard by the time this one's mm-hmm. out. Um, and now we're pushing into another favorite topic of tour guide talk. Famous Texan, John Bell Hood. There right we go. back to Texas. Right back to Texas. That was yeah. almost unflinching. Yeah. But you know, he's not actually from Texas. He's I'm, Kentucky. He's a Kentuckian. And then he lived in Louisiana. Died in Louisiana. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So we're talking John Bell Hood and John Schofield. Old JBH. Ah, old, yes. Old Johnny B. Johnny Johnny B. Hood. John versus John. John and John. The Battle of Johns. Doesn't quite have the same ring as the Battle of Franklin, does it? Yeah. Duel of the Johns. Duel of the Johns. And now Duel of the Fates plays in the yes. background. I can make that happen, actually. Please do that. I should make yeah, that happen. That, it's I really want to see John Schofield and John Bell Hood. Which with, one's Darth Maul? I mean, I guess I'm going to have to go with Hood because he gets cut in half. Oh, that's good. That is. That's really I'm just saying. That is. It's just hard for me to imagine John Schofield is quite got Jin, though. And it's Obi-Wan. It is. Oh, no. So, Schofield, we can say, is maybe... Please don't say Jar Jar Binks. No, I wasn't <laughs> going to say that. I was going to say, he'll, let's make, we can make Schofield Qui-Gon, and then we can make General Cox Obi-Wan. I actually really like that. I do, too. Yeah. Jacob Cox can come <clears throat> in and train up somebody. And... Are we doing the Civil War of Star Wars right does now? That mean, does, that, does that mean Jefferson Davis is Palpatine? I am the Senate. Doing well, this. considering his kind of stranglehold on all the states, yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. I mean... Does that make, then, Lincoln Mace Windu or Yoda? Is he the strongest Jedi, or is he the wisest? Oh, man. Uh, I feel like... Can we can we just make Lincoln Qui-Gon again? I don't know. I, I just... <laughs> Qui-Gon twice. We've got two Qui-Gons. That's a lot of Liam Neeson. That's just what I'm saying. I... No, I think he's got to be Mace Windu. No. No, No, Grant's Mace Windu. See, no. no, McClellan is Mace Windu. Mace Windu's full of himself. Mace Windu is pride. But McClellan isn't that strong, and Mace Windu's the strongest Jedi. We're getting way off topic here. No, we're really not. We said that we would do an episode of the Civil War that was all about Star Wars. We and call you know, it the Galactic the, Civil War. You can make the argument the Confederacy wasn't completely wrong. They wanted more representation. They felt like the... You mean the Star Wars yes, Confederacy? Yes, the Star Wars I want, Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was going to see how long it took for you guys to realize which direction I was going. All right, I was like... <laughs> I was hanging in there. There again, though, Star Wars makes its way into the Civil War. Yeah. So... Uh, John Bellhood and John Schofield, two guys we talk about a lot yep. at all three sites, Cardhouse, Carton, Rupa Villa. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what do we want to talk about a little John Schofield? Let's start with him. Yeah, he's born in New York, mm-hmm. but eventually works his way into Illinois, yeah. where he, um, he'll end up in West Point, class of 53, yeah. same class as Hood. And, and, and McPherson. And McPherson. They were um, roommates. A others, too. Yeah. Class of 53's got a lot of Civil War studs in it. Yeah, they all know each other. I know after West Point, I know Hood ends up in Texas. Where does Schofield end up? What does he do? I think he qualifies as an engineer. Engineer? Okay. I think so. Yeah, because I know um, 
Yeah, I know in, in, in the Battle of Franklin, he's working on repairing the bridge, and I always make the comment, he's a West Point graduate, he's an engineer, he mm -hmm. knows how to work this. Yeah, they've been around the block a time or two. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, Schofield, uh, he also, though, gets his reputation, especially post-war. Uh, like when he gives himself the Medal of Honor? Well, because he was in <laughs> charge of the entirety of the United States Army. Yeah. I mean, he's... It's what? It's Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, Schofield after that. So it's kind of like one of those things. Like He clearly was riding the political train and trying mm -hmm. to find a way to... Yeah, he's very much a political general. Yeah, like move himself forward. Yes. Um, which, I mean, I always have to think oh, about... Okay, he yeah. wasn't an engineer. He wasn't? No. No, he qualified as an artilleryman. Oh. Which is like, you can if you're in the top of the class, you can pick. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, you just decide whichever you want to do. Uh, so he is, his first course was at... His first, his first post, I combined all of the words together, yeah. was at Fort Moultrie in South Carolina. That's not far from Fort Sumter. Mm. Um, and huh, so here's a little quote for you. John Schofield served two years in the artillery. His first post was at Fort Moultrie, which he later noted involved the same guns that were used to bombard Fort Sumter in 1861. Uh, he got sick while he was there uh, during the Seminole Wars, uh, and who would have saved John Schofield's life, but yet another Confederate general, A.P. Hill. Oh, that's funny. Uh, so oh. A.P. Hill gets him out of, out of South Carolina, out of Florida, whatever. Um, he gets better and then goes and becomes a professor at West Point. Okay. okay. So he's there in mathematics and uh, experimental and natural philosophy. See, right up to 1861. And again, that I, 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 this is kind of something I do think is interesting. Is that Hood and Schofield really are almost kind of perfect foils for one another. Because mm -hmm. I, I really do think that you could not find two people who are just different on kind of every level like that. Yeah. Schofield's way more of the book smart, classroom heavy kind of individual mm -hmm. where Hood's strengths lie in the practical mm -hmm. uh, I mean, fighting. Schofield was in books and Hood was in a boxing ring mm -hmm. while yeah. at West Point. Exactly. Hood's an athlete. Schofield. If you want to really simplify it, Hood's a jock and John Schofield is the president of the math club. I just imagine Homer Simpson seeing Schofield walk by and just going, NERD! <laughs> <laughs> and now, no matter how I talk about him, that's going to come to mind. Thank yep, you. You're welcome. Appreciate you it. You are welcome. Man. That, I, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean... You're right, Thank but you. still. Thank you. I have my moments. That's what I bring to the table. I hate that you're not wrong. That's... You are welcome. Uh, so John Schofield then commissions, uh, he leaves the Army, actually, mm -hmm. for about like a year, mm -hmm. from 60 to 61. Then in 1861, he rejoins. Uh, he's out in Missouri, in mm -hmm. St. Louis, because he goes and takes a job there as a, as a professor at a university. And then by the time the war breaks out, he joins the Army, uh, rejoins the Army, I should mm -hmm. say. Uh, and he's there with uh, our our dear friend, not John C. Fremont, but Nathaniel Lyon. I was going to say, General Nathaniel yeah. we were just talking about him the other day. Yeah. Um, I get my Missouri and Western, I mean, the war out there is like a... It's chaos. It yeah. is. It is. There's a rat's nest of people. I mean, just Missouri in general is one of those states that's basically a 50-50 split, but it's like there's just pockets of... Yeah, Both it's not sides. like it's geographic, like, oh, northern Missouri. It's just everywhere. Yeah. Um, but that's where McPherson, that's where John Schofield is in the very outset uh, of the war. Fights at Pea Ridge. We see what happens mm -hmm. with him there. Lion is killed. 
Schofield sort of kind of pseudo assumes command of the army, even though as the chief of staff, he's he's not actually next in line to command an army. He just sort yeah. of does it. And he, he does well enough to where he doesn't need to be replaced. See, and that, that I think is something that does come up on tour. And I know you were talking about this the other day, but uh, usually when people do bring up Schofield, and he is the one that I think it's mentioned the least between him mm-hmm. and Hood, when they do bring him up, it's always to knock him, to always say that he wasn't really a good fighter. But as far as we can tell, that's just not true. Yeah. I mean, he's not... He's not amazing. No, mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But he doesn't have to be. Yeah, he's, he's just good by, enough. He's surrounded by pretty capable people, and he just has to be good enough. He's he's completely competent, though. Yes. And I would even argue that the best quality a general can have is delegating to the people who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's it, it's kind of like how a movie director works. You don't necessarily need to be the expert. You just need to know who the experts are and get them yeah. to do what they need to do. And then those generals that have to have their hands in everything and have to know it, you usually see them fail on the mm-hmm. battlefield. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the, the big criticism of Schofield is that he wasn't on the line. Yeah. He wasn't there. He wasn't with Jacob Cox. He was building a bridge. And what was that really doing? Uh, getting the army out of Franklin. Yeah. yeah. Completing the objective of getting to Nashville. And not, not only that, but he is also in communication with his superior, George Thomas, mm-hmm. in Nashville. So... Mm-hmm. He's not doing nothing. He said it. I know. He didn't woo. I didn't woo. Go he ahead. We know you it. want to. Woo! <laughs> okay. There it is. There it Had is. to get one in. Had to so, get one. So he, he's constant correspondence with his superior officer. And then he's in constant correspondence with his subordinates, too. <laughs> it's not like he just looks at, jo- at Jacob Cox and says, All right, I'm going to go build a bridge. Have fun, Let's buddy. Take care. <laughs> All throughout the day, they're constantly talking to one another, constantly sending messages back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the night, as the fight's wearing on, Schofield's relying on Jacob Cox to constantly keep him up to date with the most up-to-the-minute reports mm-hmm. from the line. And then he's still he's still in command of the Army and the fact that he's sending orders back to Jacob Cox. Mm-hmm. It's Schofield that tells Cox, all right, now pull the artillery. Yeah. Okay, now pull the infantry. Okay, now pull the last little bits out of the town, and then we'll be out of it. And I, I do think it's also something to be said that there's a certain quality that good leaders have, which is being able to trust your subordinates and not feeling the need to constantly micromanage. Mm-hmm. Now, again, mm-hmm. the other side of that is Cox has to be good at his job, but... Mm-hmm. It, it's, <laughs> it's strange, and I guess because I've been, I've been down the Gettysburg rabbit hole for the last mm-hmm. couple of months... The big criticisms that we see of Schofield are the same reasons that people praise Lee. It's a very good, interesting point. Because um, all Lee does is delegate. He's mm-hmm. not on the line. He's not uh, mm-hmm. on the second day when Longstreet's leading his assault against the center of the Federal Army. Where's Lee? He's at his headquarters. Yeah, Lee did lose Gettysburg. But they still say the same. That's thing. a fair point. I I, the I see what you're saying. It's yeah. not about winning or losing. The argument's about well, you know, Lee was such a great mm-hmm. general because he was able to sub- he was able to give his orders to his subordinates, or his subordinates were just really good. Yeah, and his subordinates were really good. But again, this is not to, they weren't not to hit Lee. It's just one. No, of those it, it's one of the things where, where the argument is. It's not a what aboutism. It's how can you praise one and chastise the other. 
And, and the same sure. criticism that comes down for Hood is that he wasn't leading the way mm-hmm. at Franklin. He wasn't uh, out front of all the divisions. How about this? It's not an army commander's job to be in front of their armies. Let, let me ask you this, though. If John Bell Hood had both of his legs by the time of his battle, do you think he would have been leading from no, the No, because he's an army commander. And that, I think, is, again, the distinction yeah. to make here. Yeah. I'm glad. I, I just wanted even, you to say even that. Even the Corps commanders were held in reserve. Mm-hmm. It's not like they went in. Ben Cheatham didn't ride in. Yeah. They probably went about halfway, probably made it to like Privet's Knob or something, but didn't go all the way into the assault. Yes. You know? But again, I think that's the... Bringing this back to Hood for a second, too, I, I just feel like that is another criticism that people do give him, mm-hmm. is that, well, if he had been fully himself... Then so what, what Dave, he had been, so what David's talking about it for those of you that maybe are listening to this episode maybe it's the first time you've listened to tour guide talk uh, and maybe the first time that you've learned about John Bell Hood is that by the time of the Battle of Franklin he's been wounded twice mm-hmm. uh, a piece of shrapnel at the second day of Gettysburg has ripped his left arm all the muscle tissue from like his bicep down to his wrist it's rendered that arm partially immobilized and then he was shot in the right leg at the Battle of Chickamauga and the leg is amputated four inches beneath the hip. So he is in the saddle through a lot of labor and a lot mm-hmm. of customization. Mm-hmm. He's got a cork prosthesis. So he is not the same physical build that he was, with, say, when he graduated from West Point in 1850. And I mean, but he's tough as nails. He is. Like, he's still going. And that's the thing, too, about, about like a big giant difference between both Hood and Schofield is Schofield's promotions did not come from battlefield victories, they came from. Essentially, competence. He's, mm-hmm. he's promoted, but not by battlefield merit, but just by being competent. Being less incompetent than the other guys. Right. <laughs> and, and Hood's battlefield promotions, or Hood's promotions, come from his battlefield actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peninsula campaign. He leads the charge up Malvern Hill. He's there at Eltham's Landing where his men push back. And just to show you how close to being in the fight he was, when Hood was the commander of the Texas Brigade, this also shows you how close... He came to not being alive by 1864. Uh, no one in his brigade had loaded their rifles, same, save for one soldier who had been on a hunting expedition the day before. And Hood rides out right in front of the Texas Brigade, steering them forward down these hills, down towards the... Uh, I, I can't remember what the necks are, the waterways that are there. Maybe it's the James River? Mm-hmm. Or, don't quote me on that. But pushing them from Eltham's Landing down towards the riverway uh, against the Army of the Potomac. And... A federal soldier is aimed, loaded, and ready to fire when that one loaded rifle from the entire Texas Brigade uh, kills that man. And it's actually it's credited to have saved John Bellhood's life. <laughs> um, I mean, Hood is right there in the thick of the fight, so much so that his staff is kind of almost accidentally riding into federal mm-hmm. lines and turning back around. And then he's there at Antietam. He's in Miller's Cornfield. He's in the mm-hmm. woods. And it's, it's Lee that goes to Hood on September the 18th and, and tells him, uh, or ask him, rather, where his division is, and Hood points to Miller's Cornfield, and he says, they're lying dead in the field where you sent them. Yeah. And this is the same Hood who's, he misses Chancellorsville, but he's there at Gettysburg, and he's supposed to be the, the hammer that's going to slam against the federal line, and he's wounded, mm-hmm. and then the entire attack kind of sputters out because you've lost a key division commander. That shows you his impact on the battlefield, mm-hmm. but then he's recovered, he's there at Chickamauga, and he's part of the hammer yet again yep. that's going to crash right through the center of the federal line there and I don't know 
how much crashing through you actually do when there's about a half mile open wide hole in the middle of the line. That long street just kind of says, okay, we'll go through there. <laughs> but Hood's leading the way. He's there at Dyer's Field. He's caught up in all the gunfire. He's there with Jerome B. Robertson in the Texas Brigade. And that's when a bullet strikes in the upper right thigh. And the description, I think it's one of the men of Robert, Robertson's staff, says that the round hit him with so much force it actually threw him from the saddle. Uh, wow. So he ends up on the ground. He's demanding. He's saying, I will not be taken off the field. I will not come off the field until this action is resolved. Finally, the Texans push through. And Dyer's Field, who's there, but remember, not Dyke. Uh, anyhow, he gets thrown back. Always oh, a good way to roll him in, looking at his picture. Right I saying, you want to give a Bill Woo right now? Woo. Okay. Uh, that was a sad woo. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I've never heard you woo Emerson Updike before. Yeah, it's not it's sarcasm mostly. It's amazing, <laughs> it's amazing but, what happens there. Was Hood? Was it a friendly fire shot? There? No, it was. It was. Okay. It was. A, it was. A, a, I mean, he's right there in the thick of the fight. Yeah. Uh, he's trying to rally his Texas brigade. I mean, that's the men that he's been fighting with since 1861, mm-hmm. and they're kind of stymied there. He rides up. He's Apparently, he's grabbing the colors. I think it's the first or the fourth Texas when he's shot, thrown from the saddle, removed from the field. And his amputation is risky because mm-hmm. yeah. it's so high. Uh, I forget the actual statistics, but it's only like four men survive this yeah. operation, it, it, and he's it, one of them. When you get that high up in the light, there's just so many veins and arteries that yeah. anything could go wrong. Yeah, and yet he survives, mm-hmm. pulls through, recovers in Richmond. Gains kind of the, the admiration of the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis. And he's placed in command of a corps during the Atlanta campaign. And there are so many skeptics of Hood. So many, I, I call them Hood haters. I mean, mm-hmm. they are. I mean, a lot of them are. The, we've talked about this because Eric and I did an episode yesterday on myths of Franklin. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he said is, you know, it's bad business to fall in love with dead people. But it's even worse to hate people that are have been dead for 150 years and you never knew. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. And how people... There is... You never see it with the people that don't like John Schofield. Mm-hmm. They don't hate him and wish that he never lived. There are people that wish that John yeah. L. Hood was never born. Well, I think because... He's almost the scapegoat for why does the South lose. Oh, he absolutely is. And, I mean... Well, him and Longstreet. Yeah. They almost go hand in hand because people blame Longstreet for not having the victories at Gettysburg and they blame Hood for destroying the Army of Tennessee. But you have to be fair in that assessment. Joseph Johnston had done an incredible job of wrecking the Army throughout the Atlanta campaign. So when Hood assumes command, he's taking command, albeit a physically fit army, Mm -hmm. but one whose morale is just... Totally sapped. And just not necessarily in a position to do much about no. it. Uh, he's, he's got his back to the city of Atlanta. What's he supposed to do? Yeah. Well, the other, the other thing, and I guess this is kind of what I was alluding to before, is that, uh, whereas, of course, again, a general in that position of Hood or Schofield should not be leading the charge. Right. I think there is a part of Hood, though, that really wishes he could. Because I feel like that's just the kind of guy he is. He's an offensive player. That, that's what I mean. It's like yeah. the, it, I, I think the idea of him like sitting back, watching this battle unfold at Franklin, and not really being able to go out there and change how it's going personally mm-hmm. bothers him. 
that's the impression I've always gotten. And I don't know, I, because I'm always, a, I'm, I always think back on like Band of Brothers, just because I love that miniseries. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm picturing like, you know, Dick Winters trying to charge in. Uh, yeah. When it's like, your rank can't allow you to do that anymore. Right. And that's, a, that's actually a really yeah. big comparison. And, yeah. and again, I, it's just that. But it, I also think it's one that he's used to by this point, too. Because mm-hmm. yeah. he had been the Army commander since Atlanta. He had been engaged all around Atlanta. It's not like he was ever right out front with his men there. Certainly. He, he's and a professional. Even, even as a corps commander, he wasn't leading charges anymore. But brigade and division, yeah, he might have thrown himself out there. In the, I mean, he's right there in the thick of it. That's how he ends up being shot twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then that's the other difference between Hood and Schofield. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. Membership with the Battle of Franklin Trust is a partnership to help fulfill the Trust's mission to preserve, understand, and interpret the American Civil War. Annual memberships help with the day-to-day operations, including ongoing research, quarterly magazine productions, interpretive staff, museum collection oversight, and visitor programming. In addition, the Battle of Franklin Trust directs a portion of annual memberships to the Battle of Franklin Endowment to plan and prepare for the future needs. Become a member today at boff.org membership. Hood's always that kind of lead from the front guy. Mm-hmm. Schofield is a little bit more reserved. Mm-hmm. You know, I have good subordinates. I've got good brigade commanders when he's in command of a division. I've got good division commanders when he's in command of a corps. They know what they're doing. Yeah. I just have to rely on them. Absolutely. And Hood has good subordinates, but they're good subordinates that aren't used to working with one another. And they're good subordinates who personally try to undercut Hood. And each other, which yeah. is each my other. favorite part. You've got Benjamin Cheatham, A.P. Stewart. A.P. Stewart is probably, of all of his subordinates, at least the most capable, mm-hmm. certainly the most able of all of them, and probably the one with the least to gain mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of personality and sort of reputation. Cheatham, Stewart, Lee. Stephen D. Lee. Stephen Lee. A man who has done everything. Mm-hmm. Infantry, cavalry, artillery. Now he commands a corps. Yep. Perfectly competent. <clears throat> And then you've got Forrest, mm-hmm. who, I mean, even if you want to be, give, if you want to give Forrest credit, he is a very capable officer, officer. very capable leader yes. of men, but not a very capable cavalryman. Yeah. And you also need to remember, he was not attached to the Army of Tennessee. Joe Wheeler mm-hmm. is the Army of Tennessee's cavalryman. Yes. He is a traditional cavalryman, gathering reconnaissance, yep. making reports. Forrest is a raider. A glorified raider. Wheeler's not here. He's in Georgia, screening against Sherman. So he's... Hood's got this team. I would almost call it a team of rivals to steal from Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, And then you've got John Schofield, who has Jacob Cox Mm -hmm. and David Stanley. Mm -hmm. Two decorated, veteran, experienced officers who you can rely on. Yes. And who can work actually pretty well with one another. Mm-hmm. The animosity doesn't come to later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I, I throw Wilson in there as well. And James Wilson. Who and is underrated. I underrated, but underrated largely because of where he comes from. He comes from the East, and who had he been going up against in the East? 
the traditional cavalryman. In fact, I would say the best cavalryman in the Confederate Army is Jeb Stuart. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Wilson's being beaten up left and right by Stuart. Then he comes out west, and he has no idea where some of his men are. He's got to pull, pull his cavalry corps together, and he's doing it all on the fly. That shows you that he can be relied on in a way that maybe Forrest, you've got to kind of, you've got to urge him. You've got to push him in the right direction constantly. And that's the strength that John Schofield has that Hood might lack. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Uh, just to go off down the rabbit hole on this one, just because <laughs> I figured we got you talking at this point. Yeah. Um, would you would you say Wilson <laughs> would prefer to go up against Forrest than he did Stewart? I think so. Because again, I feel like Forrest is one of those guys who's just been so mythologized that mm -hmm. uh, people, I think, come into this battle when they come to take a tour, they want to know where Forrest is. But then they're kind of disappointed when they leave, if that's, like, why they come in. Yeah. Yeah. So, where was Forrest and all this? Kind of off to the east. Not, not really doing, doing much. Uh, oh, what was he doing in the campaign? Ran into Wilson. Ran into Wilson a lot. <laughs> Bouncing around the state a bunch. Well, the, the one thing that he does throughout the kind of the lead-up to the campaign is he's, he's doing a very good job of screening for Hood's advance. Making yeah. sure there's nobody in front of him. Making sure there's nobody on his flanks. He's doing a good job there, but where Forrest sort of lacks is in reconnaissance gathering, <laughs> which is really the chief job of cavalry. In the Civil War, eyes, and, be ears. eyes and ears of the army, and then after a battle or before a battle, screen for an attack in the, in the lead up to a fight, and at the end, essentially being like a mop-up crew. Mm -hmm. Come in, drive any stragglers, drive any skirmishers from the field, and then that's it. That's really what cavalry do. It's not like the Napoleonic times where they were the they were the vanguard and then the infantry came in behind them. You would have the infantry attack and then the cavalry would charge in and defend the it doesn't look like that anymore. And what he does really, really, really well, we have to give credit, mm -hmm. is in the screening and in the skirmishing. Because he fights like mounted infantry, moves from place to place, mm -hmm. does a really good job of that. But as far as keeping Hood up to date as to where Schofield is, as to where Wilson's cavalry is, he's perfectly average in that capacity until you get to Spring Hill and then everything falls and, apart. And that was going to say, I feel like what I'm, the impression I'm getting from this is that the biggest difference between Hood and Schofield and the respective armies mm -hmm. is that Hood was not trusted by his subordinates and his subordinates, I think there, there's I, just I, no I trust there. I don't disagree. I, don't I feel like scope. Well, well, here's what I'm saying though. It's like I feel like when we look at something like Spring Hill, Schofield's giving orders, his men are giving information back, mm -hmm. and that's kind of part of the reason why they're able to pull off this crazy escape up the road. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hood, you've got all these different people either second guessing, or again, maybe not really sure what they're supposed to do. And not willing to trust that someone else is helping them. Well, actually, I would I would argue that there's probably too much trust. Um, and then, to the other point, I think a lot of it is maybe misunderstanding. Yeah, I think it's more. Yeah, especially right, I'll, I'll, I'll default to you guys. Yeah, then. Especially here, in especially Spring here in Spring Hill, I think it's more of a misunderstanding because for some reason, 
Cheatham is more obsessed with the city of Spring Hill instead yeah. of blocking the road. Yeah. And I think it's just fog of war. Okay. And I think he just realizes Claiborne is under extreme pressure. Mm-hmm. So he is trying to get he's trying, to, he's trying to support uh, yeah. Claiborne. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then so he becomes. Okay, you guys are on. definitely more the expert than I am on this one, so I will. I will. I don't. Woo! I don't mean to jump down on you. No, no, no please. This please. is just. I. I don't. I think it really is more of just a colossal misunderstanding. Yeah, and then by the time realization comes into into view the next morning, and the fog of war is clear, mm-hmm. it's too late. Schofield's gone, and now you have no choice but you have to follow up. Yeah, you've got to chase him down, and and that's where. Hood's decision making could be criticized by a lot of people, mm-hmm. but uh, I've said this a million times. I think I say it on every Battlefield tour. I don't know if Hood made the right decision, but I certainly can't tell you he made the wrong one. I, yeah. I don't know if I would have made a different decision. I tell people it's to, his only decision. Yeah. Like, it, it's. It, what it, else could he do? He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. This is mm-hmm. it. There's no other option. Mm-hmm. John Bell Hood did not go through all the tall grass, march through all these hills, lead his men all that way just to turn around. Mm-hmm. He hadn't lost yet. Yep. True. There's still one opportunity. Maybe, just maybe, maybe he can pull it off. It's a long shot, and he understood that. And all of his corps commanders, I think every single soldier on the line understood that. So that's Hood and Schofield. What about after the war? Uh, John Bell Hood naturally is defeated. Yeah. He's, I think he surrenders in May of 65, Natchez, Mississippi. He's paroled, goes back to Texas, becomes a land manager. He's also the first major Confederate general to ask for a pardon, correct? Mm-hmm. I think so. One of them? Yeah, yeah. At, least, at least one of the first. Mm-hmm. And he encourages all of his men to do the same. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's very much like, we lost. We must move on and be good American citizens now. Mm-hmm. Which, again, I think maybe it is mm-hmm. it is part of the reason why I think he does get scapegoated then. Well, that that comes a lot, too, with, with so him. He's in Texas. Mm-hmm. By 1868, he moves to New Orleans, yep. gets uh, involved in the cotton exchange there, gets married, mm-hmm. Anna Hen and Hood, and they will have 11 children, three sets of twins. Um, and while he's there, James Longstreet is also in New Orleans. And Longstreet has become a fierce advocate for Reconstruction. He's become mm-hmm. a Republican in the post-war years. And, and I forget what year it is. I want to say it's 73 or 74. I think 74. Mm-hmm. Uh he, Longstreet is quoted in the newspapers as saying, you know, people of the South, we are conquered people, uh, and instantly castigated, mm-hmm. hated by the jubilarlies of the world and by the, uh, the, the kind of unapologetic, unreconstructed Confederates. Mm-hmm. And, and then in 74, Longstreet leads the integrated metropolitan police force in the Battle of Liberty Place against the White League, and then after that, very quickly leaves New Orleans, and he leaves the presidency of the American Life Association to his old division commander, John Bell Hood. Yeah. And so Hood starts traveling, goes all across the South, goes everywhere that you can think of. He's in St. Louis, he's in South Carolina, and actually while he's in South Carolina, he gives his own speech about, uh, uh, about Reconstruction and says that we should not allow ourselves to identify with the Ku Klux. We must reject them. Uh, he's talking about educating... Because uh, that'll make for- you popular in <laughs> South Carolina. Right. He's also talking about time. educating uh, former slaves, trying to get uh, sort of a kind of a, a, a real sense of, of education mm-hmm. and of benefit. He's, you know, it's now time for us to pick these people up. Uh, so Hood has gone through his own sort of long street moment. 
And he's hated for it, mm-hmm. too. And then John Schofield stays in the Army the rest of his life. And yeah, really pretty much. Yeah. And, it, and, that, and that's the other key difference, though. Is I think whereas Schofield got this long political career, basically, mm-hmm. Hood's, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure he dies by 48. Uh, he's, what? He, I don't, he's not 50, I don't he, think. He's 33 at Franklin. He dies in 1879, so... I hope this doesn't make it into the podcast. This is just he's bad. 48 when he dies. So I was correct. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's 48 when he dies, uh, and he doesn't live long enough really to even finish his own memoirs. He doesn't live long enough to finish his own uh, uh, published okay. full version of the memoir. Can we talk about his memoirs real quick because I love the story behind it. Oh, the the um, orphan. Yeah, because P.T. Beauregard mm-hmm. also hated uh, Johnson. Judge. So uh, he was like, oh, Hood didn't like him. Hood died. Yeah. I'm going to pay for this to be published because I also don't like who Hood did not like. Yeah. And then the other part of it, too, is that by the time Hood I gets into pettiness. the 1870s, he's already engaged in kind of memory wars with Joe Johnston. Because mm-hmm. Johnston's writing about Atlanta and Hood's writing about Atlanta. And they're reading, you read one and you read the other and you're reading two very, very different stories. Um, and then... When Hood, by 78, he goes to Washington, D.C., he meets with William Tecumseh Sherman, who at the time, I think, is the general-in-chief of the Army, and he's collecting reports. Sounds correct. Uh, and, and the two of them had Christmas together at one point. In mm-hmm. New Imagine that very awkward yeah. Christmas dinner. Well, I mean, because so anyways, there I was beating your butt all around Atlanta. It wasn't because Sherman Remember also. Remember, you burned Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I got blamed for it. But, <laughs> but Sherman too, though, had that Louisiana connection. He, yeah, but it's also a connection between two former adversaries, and he had the same connection, and I think a bit more of an intense connection with Joe Johnston. Mm-hmm. Uh, one would be pallbearer at the other one's funeral. Uh, and then I think Johnston gets sick almost immediately after that and passes away just a few months later, mm-hmm. years later. But Hood never gets to finish his memoirs. They're published in kind of an incomplete, mm-hmm. unedited, and sort of shuffled up way. They don't really flow chronologically, and yet it's the last thing that you really have from him. It's the last statement he can give. And then Ben Cheatham and the other kind of the, the middle Tennessee culprits... Mm-hmm. They get to write their own recording of history. They get to counter everything that Hood says. He's not there to defend himself. Yeah. And so he's gone. He fades into history. Steiner stays submerged. John Schofield, meanwhile, doesn't retire uh, until 1895. Wow. So he spends 47 years or 46 years in the Army. And he's a career soldier. He retires at Lieutenant General. And he's a Medal of Honor recipient as of September of 1892, when he awarded himself a Medal of Honor for his actions at Pea Ridge. Wasn't, uh, by the way, wasn't his biography, like, I think I had someone say at one point that his own, like, autobiography was, like, almost required reading for a time as well. At, I think at West Point, yeah. Yeah. So well, he goes on to get Hawaii as a colony. Yeah. That's the gateway to the Pacific, yeah. is what he calls it. It's Schofield Barracks. Yeah. yeah. For him. Uh, so these two men live very, very different lives. They fight very, very different wars, and they have a very, very different post-war life and career. Mm-hmm. And so to think of them as being so similar just because they're born the same year, they're both 33, they both have beards, I think that's really where the similarities end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And these are two very complex, very complicated men that I think when we talk about them and when... We were they were both Democrats. I mean, hey, 
<laughs> I mean, that's correct. <laughs> uh, yeah. Different sides of the same coin. Yeah. But their their time in the army, their time in the fight, their time alive. I mean, their life. Yeah. It's worth studying, and it's also worth us as good guides, as good interpreters, to be objective and to be fair to them. Neither one of them is a hero. Neither one of them is a villain. I think they're they're both very flawed, mm-hmm. very complex, very complicated men that we should spend time with, and we should spend time getting to know them through their memoirs and through their autobiographies, and we should encourage, I think, listeners and guests alike. And there are two great books. We do carry Advance and Retreat, which is John Bell Hood's autobiography, mm-hmm. kind of his time in mm-hmm. with Joe Johnston. And then we also carry uh, Sam Hood's uh, Rise, Fall, and Resurrection of John Bell Hood, mm-hmm. which is a great book looking at both like the title says, the rise, fall, and resurrection mm-hmm. of kind of dealing with his legacy. Yeah, yeah. Well. his legacy. Because after he's dead, he's just—I mean—he's castigated by the Southern Historical yep. Papers and the pages of the Confederate Veteran, and then by the 1960s and 70s, uh, you know, the kind of the reemergence of the Civil War in popular memory, and then by the 90s, he's a drug-addicted amputee who's mm-hmm. angry having a love affair with a woman in Richmond and hating all of his men and ordering them to die by mass suicide. Uh, and so uh, Hood's bathroom, uh, Hood's picture kind of infamously hung in the bathroom at the visitor center at the Carter House, like a little sick joke. Yeah, that and, was weird. And then just in the last maybe 15, 20 years, so much more work has gone into figuring out more about him. And understanding who he was. And then John Schofield's got a book in the bookstore, too. Yep. 47 Years in the Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, his own personal memoir. And then there is a good biography of him by Donald Conley. Harder to find, but very, very good. Worth your time. Um, so I, I got nothing else. No, I, else? I feel like we've okay. kind of tackled everything there. we needed to. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for you guys coming in on your day off. Of I have work now. That's fine. Well, I'll, I'll be playing God of War, so yeah. just know I and will be birthday, doing thank you. all things. It's your birthday? Tomorrow, the 21st. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. April 21st, a day that will live in infamy. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>